Hey y'all, and welcome back to the Orthodoxical Podcast. It's your host, Kyle, and I'm sharing this episode with my friend, Preston. Um, we actually recorded a little bit ago, um, but I mean, unfortunately, I think it's still really relevant and uh, crucial, and it's about social activism. So uh, Preston was um, uh, a an associate. I don't really know what his position title would have been, but he was he basically worked for a, a nonprofit called Faith for Justice um in St. Louis, Missouri and kind of was at the forefront of a uh a nonprofit that was doing really amazing justice work and um and this was kind of in the light of a lot of stuff that had happened with Ferguson and and Mike Brown and um yeah, so he just has a really great perspective. Um he's currently a seminary student and I think you guys will really uh benefit from his perspective and a lot of the stuff that he has to say about um, what it looks like to uh, be an activist um, while still maintaining uh, Christian faith. And um, if you guys want to like, rate, and subscribe and share this episode, that would be awesome. And let's jump into this uh, conversation with Preston Grissom. What's up, y'all, and welcome back to the Orthodoxical Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Bumgarner, and today I'm joined by my good friend, Preston Grissom. And so Preston, um, once again, another connection through the Trinity Fellows Program. The pipeline of guests for this podcast in Trinity is, is growing exponentially. But Preston is a, uh, a scholar, a theologian. Uh, he's got a background in, uh, in faith-rooted organizing and just a really solid, uh, thoughtful dude. I uh, really appreciate him and, and all that he uh, brings to the kingdom of God and to the family of God. So Preston, thanks for being on the show. Man, Kyle, thank you so much for having me. I'm pumped to be here with you. Yeah, and I, I give this disclaimer for pretty much every like uh, episode that I've done with like people that are close friends of mine is that like I'll probably break at some point or Preston and I will probably go off on tangents because that's yeah. just going to happen because we're friends and that's what friends do. Yeah. yeah. Out, cancel it, do whatever you got to do, but that's, that's a must. It is a must. All right. So Preston jumping in, can you give us a background of kind of your spiritual and theological journey? Hmm. Yeah. So I became a Christian in college. I was, um, Think before then, mostly convinced that God existed, but wondered if God uh, cared, if God was good, if God sort of gave us any direction on how to live. And those questions sort of stayed with me uh, over time. They just evolved a little bit. And then, you know, when I became a Christian, like I had all these questions about, you know, basic questions that people have. Like, is the Bible trustworthy? Uh, how do we know that Jesus actually existed? You know, what... Uh, how do we understand the Bible if it's sort of over so much time and space? And, um, and so someone eventually pointed me in the direction of Tim Keller. Cause I was just, I mean, I was spending like heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. Heard he's of him. he's, he's heard a, a little bit does things about stuff. And, uh, and I was just basically Googling questions for like three or four hours a day. Like it was this weird insatiable, like quest that I just needed to know the things that I didn't know. Uh, but Tim Keller was the only person that I had heard of. And so uh, someone bought me the reason for God, which was the first book that I ever finished actually when I was 19. 
Um, but I was by myself essentially, didn't know a single Christian friend uh, on campus. And so, yeah, just a lonely, like what I felt like a loser, just like on my computer, uh, you know, Googling things when everybody else was like playing games and having fun. Um, then I joined a college ministry, you know, a year or two later and I was around Christians who actually had fun and were like insanely good at making people feel important and appreciated. And, you know, they sort of introduced me to, you know, C.S. Lewis, Augustine, you know, some mystics, uh, Dr. King, you know, uh, sort of, uh, I know a lot of people sort of go in that direction after being on this sort of gospel coalition kick. I'm not sure that King and the gospel coalition would get along. Um, so, but nevertheless, I was sort of on this like gospel centered stuff, which I, I think looking back, like, you know, so I'm, I'm at Princeton seminary now and I, I don't exactly name drop Tim Keller very frequently. Um, and there yeah, there's are, Princeton seminary after a few years ago. <laughs> right, right. And there, you know, there's some good reasons for that. Um, someone could argue. Um, but I'm on this gospel centered like cycle thing, right. Where, um, I'm glad to have started there, but it's just this, um, yeah, this sort of circle of, I remember that Jesus died for me. I'm a sinner. And I sin again. And I assume it's cause like, I forgot that message that Jesus died for me. And so I sort of do that over and over again. And that's just called sanctification. And at some point I was like, this cannot be the only thing. Um, like people make a lot of decisions and it doesn't seem to be that they're just like primarily influenced by what they think about God. Like something else has to be sort of functioning here. And it was about that time um, I was doing a lot of college ministry and essentially just like, you know, still reading, still listening to things and then turning it right around two days later into like some sermon that I pretended was my own, you know, like what you're supposed to do. And I heard uh, somebody gave me this like, I almost said track. It's not a track. This is a 1980. It was like a podcast, like a YouTube video of this guy, Greg Thompson in Charlottesville. And I still remember to this day, the quote that like caught me was he said, God is not fundamentally a judge. God is fundamentally a yearning host and he welcomes in order or he judges in order to welcome. Mm. And this language is like so common to me now, I think common to you too, and probably to some of our listeners, but that was like super revolutionary to me then. Like the idea that God's judgment was not like the ultimate sort of descriptor of God's character was totally baffling to me. Um, and so I went to Charlottesville, did fellows, which, you know, is why we're connected now, praise God. And there I got uh, more into King, Howard Thurman, Baldwin, um, some sort of cultural studies stuff, uh, like intro, it should be clarified, intro to cultural studies stuff, like some brief discussions about power and how culture changes and that sort of thing. Um, but that was at least extremely helpful for me to figure out uh, other factors at play on why people make the decisions that we do other than just like whether or not we remembered that we, you know, that God died for us. Uh, and so this is also where I sort of did this switch that Trinity at the time, the church I was working at was trying to figure out like, how do we move people from this knowledge-based model of spiritual formation where like 
if I just keep struggling with a thing, like the way to answer that is to like read a book about the thing, which is not to say that like, you know, learning is bad, but they were trying to switch from this like knowledge-based model to a formation-based model. And I was like totally fascinated by this. Like as soon as I heard someone mention Benedict, like this light went off in my head, um, you know, possibly from the spirit being like, hey, Dingus, this is the thing. Like figure this out. Um, and I was around a community of people who were trying to do this. And so that's when I was like, obsessively about doing confession and, you know, morning and evening prayer and, um, and a couple other things. But that was a, a huge shift for me that has really been beneficial. Um, and then after that, uh, moved to the Midwest, uh, learned more about King, James Cone, a lot more Old Testament. Um, and here I was sort of seeing people living the Christian life and like, wildly different ways that was totally disorienting to me uh and like at a number of different times uh these are people who were like truly trying to figure out like you know james 127 like pure and undefiled religion you know in the sight of god our fathers to visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep someone unstained by the world and so i'm like trying to figure out what is going on they're they're also in process trying to figure out how to do this well um, but that was a game changer and I'm sure that we'll, we'll talk about that plenty on the pod. Um, and then the last few years, um, you know, the, my, my friends throughout time have really been crucial in moments like this. Like the last few years have been big turning points for me pretty frequently. And so the people who are just there have really helped me theologically to just uh, stabilize myself in so many different ways. And, you know, some of the more, uh, I guess, theologians would be like Bonhoeffer has been helpful. Jürgen Moltmann has been helpful, which I would be shocked if we got through this podcast and I didn't mention either of them. Um, a lot of professors here at Princeton uh, have been really crucial for me. And, um, and so now where I sort of find myself, um, uh, I guess theologically or you know practically is like I'm my calling for the season does seem to be to just be disciplined to be simple to be a good student you know I, I like mess around with a few things here and there as far as movement work goes but I am mostly just spending this very very unique time trying to think well about how I'm supposed to live in the world and um, and so yeah that looks a lot like morning and evening prayer reading more broadly, listening to friends, weeping with those who weep, paying attention to people who feel excluded. Um, and that's sort of where I find myself now. Dude, that's awesome. I'm, uh, as always, I'm very grateful for, for your journey and the way that it, um, the way that God has been faithful to you and the way that God has been faithful to me through you. So yeah, that's awesome. So, um, I want to highlight something because I think um, I think this is a pretty common occurrence within, I guess, people who were who sort of came to faith in the in the evangelical kind of circles. And I, and I would say this for myself as well, even though I was kind of in a church, an evangelical church, pretty standard like white culture evangelical church growing up, is that as you 
as you start to to grow and, and get a little bit older and you start to figure these things out, it's like you said, there's this, there's this kind of like small, like nagging feeling that is this, is this kind of it? Is this kind of the, and not in a way where it's like, there's so much else out there that I'm just going to try and learn, like you said, learn everything. I mean, maybe you and I probably both did try to learn everything. We were like, we need to, you know, have everything like wrapped up tight so we can, we can actually know and live out the truth of our convictions. But I think there is in some ways there's this nagging of like, is it really just, I need to try and like basically conduct like a sales pitch almost of people to like, Hey, like this is the Christian team. Why don't you join us? It'll be really good for you. If you do, it'll be bad for you. If you don't might as well hop on. And, and I think a lot of times that leads people like you and me into, into the realm of like, of justice, of social justice, of, of activism and, and uh, like you said, movement work and, and things like that. And so how um, can you kind of like zero in and describe your, your journey towards that, that area? Yeah. Yeah. That, I think that what you just said is, is poignant. Like the, um, it does seem to me like there's uh, there's a streamlined messaging and what we might call like what some people call the West and evangelicism. There's there's definitely a uh, disproportionate amount of power and a few number of voices. And so, but that also means like there's, they have organized well. Um, like, I don't know that we could overstate the influence of the gospel coalition and in this sort of world and how that leads to people wondering like is there more things out here like i i this is an aside but i was in uh england for like three or four months a couple years ago trying to figure out like here's this more quote-unquote post-christian culture place what churches well like what are churches doing here that might be different than what we're doing and i can sort of mentally have a mind map for what faithfulness might mean in 30 years or something. And I went there and it's like, whether it was the, the highest church you can think of like high church Episcopalian or low church non-denom, every single one of them quoted Tim Keller, DA Carson, John Piper, like all of them. And I realized like, this is, this is sort of the, the, like the epicenter of how most, like a lot of, especially white Christians think about Christian living and mm. something has to be like sort of reimagined here, which is not to say like all of those things that people talk about are bad or evil or anything, but that is to say like our imaginations have been disproportionately formed by these people. Um, so how, how did I, sorry, that's an aside. Uh, you said there would be rambling there. There, there it is. We're four minutes in. We're doing great. Um, but how did I get into like protest activists, whatever we want to call that work? Um, my, my formal participation in protest especially happened by accident. I came back from, from Cambridge in England um, on August 9th in 2017. Um, I wasn't doing anything important there. Let me just like clarify that. I just like convinced some people at Cambridge to let me go like study with them and sweep their floors at this old church and stuff. Uh, but I came back to Charlottesville 
two days before uh, the white supremacist attack that ended up taking the life of Heather Heyer and, you know, forever changed so many people's lives, including mine. Um, and, and so that uh, was sort of my like rough introduction where I got home and as soon as I landed on the plane, I had a few organizer friends in the city who were like, hey, when are you getting back? Um, we've been prepping for this for a while. Like, you know, having a tall white dude who like, you know, wouldn't look ridiculous in a button down, like actually might be helpful here so we don't get ran over. Um, and so that was my sort of formal introduction. And then three days after, um, after A11 and A12, I moved to the Midwest where I'd already sort of taken a job there and uh, it was formally trained there by organizers who had been, uh, you know, trained either during or before the Ferguson uprising. And so I uh, spent a few months there protesting, which was looked like for them, like a lot of rage expression and public truth telling and laments at intersections. And uh, this was over the, the, the murder um, and non-indictment of an officer who, who murdered Anthony Lamar Smith a few years before. Um, and most of what I did there was like, and I would say even most of what uh, I guess some people would call activist work for me is like just showing up, doing what I'm told to do and trying to do it thoughtfully and prayerfully. And that takes different forms at different times, depending on, you know, what's needed and sort of level of experience and that sort of thing. But that was, uh, that was at least sort of the genesis of, of my participation in what might be called, you know, protest activist work, something like that. Yeah. man. I, cause I think, were you staying at, I think you were staying at our house when, <laughs> when, uh, charlottesville everything went down then yeah i I remember we both saw each other at the end of the day and we were just like well (laughs) yeah that was one of the most bizarre experiences probably of my life yeah so so i had lived in that house for people who don't know i had lived in that house the year before and then you had moved in and um and maybe i was still living there i think we might have had like a few weeks of intersection i'm not totally sure but i came back um, from, you know, driving around the city all day and totally wide-eyed. And I came back and like, you were there and there's this very like thoughtful, sort of like empathetic, you know, not surprising at all for people who know you sort of like look on your face. And I walked outside to like get a breath of fresh air. And there was like 10 people there cooking hot dogs. Like <laughs> they, had, they had like planned this thing for weeks and were like, had no, in, no like, they just weren't going to go um, to any like counter protests because uh, they just had no imagination for their participation there at that time. I think most of which have since gone to protest with me, but like to go outside and uh, and see like roasting hot dogs and like, Hey buddy, how you doing? And to be like, I'm going to turn around and go inside. Uh, <laughs> that was, that was a total baffler for me. Man, I, I don't know if I remember that. Well, I remember somebody, one of our friends had another friend from out of town come to attend a counter a counter protest. And so I know he, I think he stopped by there for a little bit, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, 
I don't remember that happening, but I, if I did, I probably felt the same way. I remember sitting inside watching CNN for like hours after, cause like I, I didn't go to the protest, but I was kind of on like the outskirts. Mm-hmm. And then after everything happened, I since then took a vow that I, I was never going to sit on the outskirts again. I was going to get in the middle of it, which I have thankfully. Um, well, unfortunately, but also thankfully. Um, yeah i remember like just watching it and then now i'm like thinking i'm like did that happen and was i was probably just like trying to block it out just to like not be like furious be like are you kidding me like how did you how are you guys ignoring this but anyway that's what the night that we like commensurated with each other watching battle rap videos i don't don't yeah that i mean that happened frequently so so um you know and i think this is there's a part of me that wonders if this has to do with you coming to faith a little bit later in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think at least the, the general trend that I've seen in, in a lot of ways is that people who kind of come to faith in as a, as a kid or grow up in church or, you, you know, come to faith when they're a high school student is that they you know, they start to ask the questions that you and I are asking, and then they get into, um, they, they start reading more things, they start kind of taking in more information, they start to see the world as a bigger place. And a lot of times, because that bigger place is often very ugly and very um, oppressive and and evil in a lot of ways, they start to kind of really trend towards like the the social justice, you know, pursuing uh, social activism and, and things like that and for a lot of people i think it it kind of in in many ways like it just kind of pulls their faith right out from under them but i would say you know i I would imagine that for both of us a lot of that is a lot of our like desire for for faith and and justice or a lot of our desire for justice is grounded in our faith so i guess like for you are there any theological insights that kind of ground the relationship between your activism and your faith yeah, I mean, sure. Um, I do think you're right, too, that there's something like completely disorienting when the world is, you know, when a veil is sort of released and you now see the world in like completely different ways than what you saw before. And that certainly happened to me a number of times. I also, um, as sort of a caveat to this answer, I don't think at least about like my any participation that I've had, which is you know, humble and heartily helpful at best, like maybe at times, um, like my participation is certainly not altruistic. Like I, I wish that it was as sort of clarifying and simple as I had this like deep theological conviction welling up in me. And because I was convinced that Jesus is on the side of the oppressed, I'm going to do this. Like that certainly has been part of it and probably a large part of it. But there's also like many other factors at play. So like my personality is drawn to energy, which has been helpful and dangerous at certain times because there's sort of like a seductive energy, especially to protest. Mm. I think people need to be aware of. Um, But that also is part of the beauty of the draw, that there's something going on that is an intensification of what's happening in the world. And that's part of what makes protests effective. Um, and also I think, you know, as another sort of non-altruistic way, like people, especially for people our age and for white people our age in America, 
I think in, in and around sort of like quote unquote liberal spaces, like it's important to know that we, there's actually a lot of social capital that you can earn Earn, quote unquote, that is say that to you. If you are a white person, especially if you are a white Christian who's like about the work, right? And um, and I think that is like deeply questionable. Not that it is like wrong. I think that we should socially incentivize people to do good, absolutely. But that's to say, like, there's a lot of reasons to question. Uh, or at least to say that like, I'm not actually as good as I think that I am. Hmm. And, um, and I simply don't know what I would do in another generation, nor am I responsible to know what I would do in another generation. Like, I, like as Bonhoeffer would say, like, God doesn't ask for an account for life. He as for, you have to give God an account for your life. And so I think there's a lot of like imagining myself in other white people's shoes and, um, so one example of this, and this is tangential now, but the, I've, this has been important for me as a, even as like a theological reflection, like I've had plenty of failures here, like uh, in trying to be faithful in what we call activism work, like there's been theological reflections that have happened just because I'm licking my wounds. Like I, I've, I've certainly been this person who felt called to tell the truth as I saw it to like every single person who crossed my path, right? And I think of other people like me, especially white people who will like confront their parents without any foundation at all of like respect and mutual vulnerability. Um, so we just sort of end up like street preachers warning against their parents' doom. And like, certainly that has happened to me. Um, and so in that process, I'll say like, in the process of failure, I have stumbled on or cling to a few theological insights. So what comes to mind is that uh, often God is quiet, hmm. that uh, we find, at least I have found that God is like, always doing good things for us, that God is certainly blessing me far more than God is speaking to me. And that has to inform our activism, some, hmm. right? It's not always clear like what that means, when to be silent. Um, but I think God's silence does have to be operative for us at least for me. And, and honestly, dude, like there, like there are times in a busy world where silence is prophetic. And if we can't learn to do that, um, like we're going to, I think we're going to actually hurt people, ourselves included. And, and part of that is just like, if we don't take the time to be silent, like I just won't know myself and that like to be not reflective while attempting to serve people is extremely uh, dangerous. Uh, but it's also one of the, one of the draws. Um, another sort of way that I think about Christian faith and activism or like Christian identity or something is like, here it is. Like I told you, this is going to come up. Like Jürgen Moltmann has been helpful and, um, and people don't really think about Moltmann in this way. And I think that's, that's reasonable. Um, but in the crucified God, he, is not doing this like political theology thing, but he is doing um, what I, I think he calls like theology with the political responsibility is how he phrases it, which is, you know, like I'm, I keep this like little black book around. I'm like super into writing down little notes of how people word things. Like um, keynotic Christology, right. look up later. Remember again, what epistemology is. Um, yeah, my, my Google searches are embarrassing. Um, 
but the story goes that he writes, so Jürgen Moman writes the crucified God because he's at Duke uh, giving a lecture. He has already written a theology of hope, which is like a super famous book in sort of like liberal academic spaces, like quote unquote, liberal, neoliberal spaces. And, but he's like talking about hope and the resurrection and he gets the news that Dr. King has just been assassinated. And he tells the presenters when he's meeting with them afterwards, he says, I'm going to come back here and I'm going to talk to you about the death of God because I need to find a way to root my hope in Jesus Christ. The hope, the message is good, but it must be rooted in Jesus or else it is, it's going to go away. So he immediately leaves to go study uh, for what will become the crucified God in which he sort of explains that Christianity is about, or being a Christian is like about trusting and following the crucified God and Jesus Christ in the world. And I would add like following the risen Christ as well. Um, but for the church to be Christian, like they're Christian to the extent that they follow this crucified God. And, and what I think is helpful is he sort of figures out like the church is, does not necessarily, at least in what we call the West, like has not displayed a massive imagination, at least to the public, about what it means to follow a God who has died in Jesus Christ. And so he sees the church sort of doing two, two things. And it's like an oversimplified binary, but I find it helpful. So when I think about like, what is a theological reflection, this comes to mind. Um, I don't think he necessarily calls it this, but I would call it like there's the conservative church on one end and that this is the church that we know of, right? It's like the one that we, you know, feel totally free to like rail against. It's like this binary between God's work and the world. Uh, you know, the gospel doesn't have justice in it. Talking about these things, the threats of the gospel, like these are trips that we understand, right? Um, and Moltmann states that like they lose their Christian identity through retreat that it's not just like they are scared to lose their identity. So they sort of cling on to it. He actually says like, in clinging on to it, they lose it mm. because the Christian identity is found in following the crucified God. Mm. And so to retreat from the world, to retreat, especially from the pain of the world is to lose where Christ is. And so they actually lose their identity as Christians, whether or not that has sort of like eternal consequences is not altogether clear for him. Um, but then there's this other side where we might call this like the progressive church, which like rightly engages in justice work for the sake of the world. They're, um, you know, risking like body, soul, mind, heart. They're, they're risking it all. They're doing the work. But for Moltmann, he sees that like these folks are actually like downplaying their Christian identity, such not just like to serve their neighbor, but to become their neighbor. Hmm. So he says like they're losing their identity through assimilation, which importantly is like to lose solidarity with the movement because you can only have solidarity with someone who's different than you. Oh. And so he ends up saying like, we end up actually not being that helpful. We're just like bodies that are there. And so his answer is to like risk the loss of Christian identity and movement work, not such, not like the progressives are necessarily, um, but to risk it knowing that your identity is in Jesus Christ and it is going absolutely nowhere. Hmm. And I think that this is at least a framework by which is like helpful for me to think about things. Um, and that can be overly politicized frequently. Like that's a, a problem that I have. 
Um, and I also think about like in theological reflection, maybe like Bonhoeffer is very similar, I think here where he thinks of grace as like uh, operative and risk that like you can't always know what decision to make. And I think this is relevant for listeners. Like it's just not clear which side to be on. Mm. And there's like actually good arguments for, you know, making either decision. Now we're not talking about uh, Charlottesville where you're like, it is white supremacists versus people trying to fight white supremacists. That is uh, clear. Um, but it's, but like our decisions in life are, are not always like between good and bad, but often as like Bonhoeffer says, it's often between two evils. Yeah. And, um, and you essentially try to do your best. Like you follow the spirit, you listen to friends, you, you try to do what you can. And there is grace for times when you are actually just choosing between two evils. And, um, and so I think these, uh, look, is much more, overly simplified for moments when I feel totally lost. Um, but Bonhoeffer is much more operative for me where there's so much uh, about the way that he thinks about truth telling and lies that like makes sense in a complicated world. Uh, so those things stick out for me. And there, there's, I use different things at different times. The spirit brings to mind different things when I'm, you know, overly excited too into myself uh, very frustrated with, you know, someone I shouldn't be frustrated with. And then times where I'm just like, you know, utterly hopeless and um, can't even imagine that the world can be better than it is. Like there's, there's different things to come to mind, but those, those come up now as you ask. Those, those paradigms are so fascinating. And, and I think, man, I'm, I'm really just turning around the whole, like, solidarity as or being the other as as a necessity to solidarity that's a really i'm going to be pondering that one probably the rest of the day yeah uh, that's, that's tricky right because and i, I won't go on too much because i also yeah. want to hear from you um but there's how that works now is not clear uh we obviously live in like a bifurcated political moment where it's not even uh clear to us that there is a model for attempting to um, to not caricature the other side in some way, like that is seen as what faithfulness is, is to choose the right side and then by any means necessary, deploy tactics against the other side. Um, and so it's, that's not, it's not altogether clear, like who else is doing this? Um, I think a lot of people are trying to do this and they're just not sure where to go. So, um, to the extent that this podcast is helpful, I'm at least glad that it really, that it exists. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we, we already kind of touched on some of these things, but my next question was going to be, who are some of the people that have kind of shaped your understanding of faith and activism? Obviously, you know, you've mentioned Bonhoeffer, you've mentioned King, you've mentioned Moltmann, like any, any others or those, any, any more on those people? Yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely say more authors and, you know, popular writers and speakers, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Is but, there someone that, like, we wouldn't think of, typically? Um, like a popular like, person, you mean? Or, I'm, I don't know, I just, I feel like, 
you get a lot of the same people when you talk about this kind of work or this kind of theology or thought process, which some of that is like, like you're not going to be able to talk about liberation theology without talking yeah. about James Cone. Um, you know what I mean? So it's like, obviously like that's somebody that you like, you're going to have to bring up or, you know, like Bonhoeffer is a big one. Um, but like, is there somebody that you, that you've, read a little about or, or kind of heard about that you're like I don't know if a lot of people know about this person that much but they would be an interesting kind of case study yeah that's a great question um I I mean my brain just finds connections in places where like often there isn't even one so yeah. um so I, I think that might be like a discipline for folks to like read more broadly I mean like Harry Potter I think has a lot of like problematic or some people find like problematic sort of tropes or I know, especially a lot of, um, a lot of my black friends find Harry Potter, like totally not exciting because he's such a example sometimes of like a very average white. Let's say white mediocrity. Like, yes. Like, <laughs> I think that's, that I think is, people in the Harry Potter universe had problems with Harry totally, for that reason. Totally. Hermione <laughs> is like still pissed about, uh, the shine he gets. And I, that's part of the storyline, right? But I, I, we live in a complicated world. Um, <laughs> but the depiction of evil there where Voldemort um, did like his, his body actually deteriorates the more that he kills. Um, like he's killing himself as he's killing other people. And the, the striking difference between him and Harry is that Harry has the capacity to love. Um, like how is that not operative in today's uh, moment. Um, you know, there's there's tons of ways we can read more broadly. I will say that um, for Christians especially, um, like any, like literally any Dr. King, like YouTube King, um, you know, Letters from Birmingham Jail is like absolute non-negotiable. If you can read and you are thinking about this, you must read that. Um, I'm not trying to like bind your conscience, but I am. Uh, but also like, I think Howard Thurman should be much, much, much more famous than he is. He totally, like you can't go to a seminary and have any conversation about anti-racism without reading Howard Thurman. But that I wish that Howard Thurman was much more popular, especially for this moment. So like, if you're listening to this and you haven't bought or written or read um, Jesus and the Disinherited. It's really short. It's really simple. It is not complicated at all. I think like most 12 year olds can understand what he's talking about. Um, but it also like, that's the book that King carried around with him for years. Like it never went. Oh, I don't think I knew that. In his suit, like inside suit pocket a lot. And I think he um, had an inside track on sort of what, what Thurman was doing, so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I think like you make you make a good point about reading King, and I want to kind of combine your advice of for people is to read King very broadly, because mm -hmm. I think like people kind of, I think a lot of people read letters to a um, letter from a Birmingham jail. They read uh, I Have a Dream, and maybe Where Do We Go From Here? Mm -hmm. yeah. But there's so many like little. I mean, and in some ways, there's a part of me that wonders if, for me, some of the most powerful uh, moments for King are his sermons. 
Yes. Like that to be the, like that would be something that I, I would say to people is like his his writing is is obviously very good and and you know and heavily impactful. Definitely check it out. But in his DNA and in his core, he was a preacher, mm-hmm. and you get a lot of stuff that you're not going to get in his writings by watching him by watching him preach by watching him speak by watching him kind of navigate these theological truths in in a very racially cast society yeah he has a he has a sermon call i think it's called wise as serpents innocent as doves and um and i think that's that would strike a chord with a lot of the listeners especially to a podcast like this yeah so from uh you know kind of i guess in a similar segue you know like we're talking about the civil rights movement clearly has a lot of very like strong theological uh foundations with you know with uh with king howard thurman Fannie Lou hamer uh megar evers like all these people that had like a very strong like sort of christian uh background um where where would you say if at any point that activism and christian faith kind of start to diverge a little bit in terms of their maybe either their goals or their underpinnings or or both yeah this question is tricky for me um because i mean it's tricky for me too so yeah that's what i'm asking you i don't know (laughs) i mean so much of it depends on how we define activism yeah And, and activism is like not a monolithic whole there's like I mean, even if you're in the same series of protests, even if we want to like narrow it to protest, which it shouldn't be necessarily, but like one day is drastically different than the next day. I mean, it just, yeah. it's always different, but my temptation is to say that Christian faith diverges from activism insofar as like maybe activism doesn't push for what looks like the kingdom of God. Um, but the problem is like, it's never really clear what that means. Um, or like, you know, the world we're trying to reform is hardly reflective of the kingdom of God at all. So we're already working with these broken pieces. Um, so that makes it like pretty complicated. And, and I think not always clear if the thing that we are trying to build is categorically different than the thing we're trying to tear down. But I, I think that's just part of it. Like that's at one level, like that's okay. So it might be tempting for us to to think about like, Maybe I, I won't join activism or protest if someone has different um, like hot button, like, se- like sexual ethics or something like that. And I, I do think that it's important that we know not just the world we're trying to tear down, but the world that we want to build. But like, if you're at a protest, especially the way that I think about it, so I'll just speak for me, is like protests are normally about one thing. Like they are about white supremacists showing up in your town and if you be quiet you just told them they were okay like they are about a non-indictment they are about a school board policy they are about one particular thing normally i mean that's not always true there's there's context to everything but they're typically about one singular thing in some way and it's it's like i you know i go to church with people who have very different beliefs than I do on a bunch of different stuff, like sexual ethics included. Um, But we all 
sort of agree that we're generally there for like, we are against the workings of evil. We are for the love of God and Jesus Christ. Um, like I said, I do think it's important for us to know what world we want to build. Um, not just tearing down, but sort of in general, I mean, to answer the question, like as specifically as I can, I don't think activism as a concept and Christian faith are incompatible in any way. Like I, I don't want to say that I don't have my ideas about which things I engage with because I do, um, or that it's not true that we can outkick our coverage sometimes. Like, um, but, but I just, I would like to say that I like to start here with like a theology of sentness maybe is what we might call it. Like mm. sentness. Um, in American context, there's so much of our political and social discourse that we can hardly even imagine that we're like, connected to each other that we're actually like supposed to go out for one another and so i'd at least like to start there um at one level um so i i I begin by thinking that that what we might call activism and christianity converge in a bunch of different places um and that that totally but that's not to say that there are not places where my faith diverges from activism i have seen um I mean, that's, that's, but that's a case by case basis. Like if you're going to attempt to make a paradigm out of this, I think things will get very problematic, which is why you should never do this by yourself. And you should hopefully be able to do it with people you trust, but some practical things that at least come to mind are like, there are some things that protests I don't chant and like, no one cares. Literally no one cares if I don't chant those things. They don't expect you to. I think that especially for white Christians who do not have experience. And again, this is narrowly defining activism as protest, which I think we'll expand later. Um, like people do not care if you don't agree with them on everything. That is somehow like unimaginable to many of us that you can be in a group together and not agree on most things. But that is true when you're showing up against, you know, some darkness. Um, another thing that comes to mind is like, I, I don't know that it's possible for me to cling to the resurrection and believe that someone is unredeemable. Like that is super easy for me to say now it is really difficult when someone has given me literally no reason to believe they're redeemable. But then I remember like, Oh, the redemption is not, uh, is not influenced by how ridiculous they are. Yeah, it's not predicated on their own agency towards good. Right, which is not to say I don't think that we're like responsible moral. Oh yeah, but, for sure. Um, another thing that comes to mind is uh, I think I think that I typically need to be reminded that, uh, and younger Christians maybe too, would not like new Christians, but younger people who are Christians, that um, that hurting someone is morally deteriorizing. Like to, I mean, this is this at least for me, came from Baldwin that like the slave master um, who is whipping the slave is killing themselves. And in this, I'm not sure how this shifted his sight, but it did seem to be one of the ways in which he could sort of hang on to a future that needed to be different. Um, And that's to say that it's like, it's a lot harder to hate someone when you realize that they are hurting themselves. Mm. Uh, And it's, I mean, that is a, I have the privilege to sort of be able to say that more freely. That's not lost on me. Um, But I think that Christian faith and activism can sort of diverge if we don't recognize that, I mean, clearly the pain of the people who are hurting 
who are being abused and also the pain of the herder. I think that is uh, maybe not unique to Christianity as a concept, but it certainly is there. Uh, so those things sort of come along. Yeah, it's 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 a very unpopular topic, but I think it's honestly one that we both a need to figure out if we're going to be a a if we're going to be the kingdom of God and b if we're going to be a functional society, and then two, it's one that we have not been able to figure out uh because and and i was literally just talking about this with a friend the other day um that we have just these kind of like totalizing meta narratives about what a person is and does and this goes for anybody and and this uh my friend was basically you know he was responding to something that I had said kind of about the president getting COVID. Um, and he was like, hey, you know, it kind of seems like you were you were saying, I, I said something along the lines of like, you know, hey, if your first response to this is to just like whoop and holler and be like, good, I'm glad he's gonna like get what's coming to him. I was kind of like, that's kind of dehumanizing. and. And it was, it wasn't like, I, I said what I said, not even just with him, but also in response to like Chrissy Teigen lost her baby. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, I'm trying really hard not to say bad words. There are a lot of people that took liberty to like, just get on her, the pictures that she posted of her, like sobbing over her dead child mm-hmm. and just be like, well, that's really sad, but what about blah, blah, blah. Or that's really sad, but should you have posted this? Or, Hey, that's really sad. Uh, you know, that, um, yeah, I, I just, there's something about that that I was just like, that's just not good. Like, I don't, there was something within me that was like, I don't think we celebrate the downfall. I don't think we excuse the downfall of evil people, but I don't think we celebrate it either. And my friend was pushing back and being like, hey, like, this is kind of, you realize that like, this has kind of been like weaponized against people of color, against other kinds of like oppressed minorities all the time right where they're just like you basically just like shame people into like forgiving people that have done massive harm and i was like hey you're right i shouldn't have said that <laughs> or I, I i shouldn't have phrased it in the in the way that i did that it was just like hey like you if you don't forgive this person you're bad mm-hmm. but it, at the same time as as i agreed with my with my friend that i was that he was right in saying that i was like i think at the same time, I still I still believe that I'm right in that we we have little capacity for a like how how doing bad things to other people how much like you said that is damaging to you not even just from like a spiritual sense but just psychologically mentally biologically how that changes your brain what it what it does to you and then also um, just how like you know, if we're talking about systems, we're talking about systems that do things like it's like you said, like people, people are moral agents, and they're also influenced by a lot of different things besides just, oh, they they made these decisions and all those things, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think what comes to mind is like, who is the person who is telling someone to forgive? Um, 
which, which is to say, like, I think that at least broadly in circles like yours and mine, it's like a little more understood that white people should like check themselves for sure before saying that. So, right. I, it's not, that is not lost on me. Um, I also think about like what roles, what, like a, a counselor who is with an, an abuser, um, has to be able to sort of disassociate the person from their action in some way and know that this person is hurting. They need to do that so that it is not on the entire community to do that for them, right? Like that that is a very specific role. So I want to be clear Mm -hmm. about this, that it is not, um, this is in part why I mentioned Bonhoeffer being so hopeful, like Bonhoeffer is not trying to create principles of Christian living that we then all conform to. He's trying to say like the word of God is actually uh, like applicable to the, in, to the individual or sometimes to the community, but it is like made operative in the life of the believer such that like, uh, and I, I maybe will say it like this, like some, one of my friends might come to me with some example of a problem that they have. And they'll say, I'm really struggling because, you know, the Bible says to do this. And sometimes when I don't know what else to say, I'll just say like, well, if Jesus was here, is that the Bible verse that he would use for you? And sometimes like they intuitively know like, no, actually I'm being too hard on myself or I'm being too easy on myself. And, um, and so that's to say like context is extremely important and for pastors um that that seems particularly challenging like if you're preaching especially or offering pastoral care the temptation is to you to see a text to try to rip a principle out of it and then reappropriate the principle into real life in a sort of very direct way and to the extent that you don't do that you're not actually biblical that's like now what how to, how to not do that is complicated right but but that's sort of the assumption. And so when we, whenever we do that, often what we end up sort of doing is telling the abused person, wait, like even before we offer consolation, telling the abused person that they need to get, like essentially get over it and forgive yeah. the abuser. And like, I mean, I don't want to make any, um, like, I don't want to be complicated about this. Like that is pastoral abuse. That is complicating abuse. It is making... Yeah. It is also, and this is this important, it's also lying to them. It is lying to them, not because they, not because what you said in fact is wrong, but because you said it as if there is no context happening. Yeah. Mm. Right? Like, would, would you, you don't have the same expectations for a three-year-old to forgive the person who just stole their train as you do for a 40-year-old who just got cut in line, Right. Why? It's not because like forgiveness has changed as a principle. It's because the context deeply matters. Mm-hmm. And so that I just want to say that, that like, um, it is, I'm like on one now, but like, this is because like, I've heard, I, you know, I'm in seminary where essentially every single person is like externalizing their previous pain from churches. And listen, like if we grew up in an institution, that institution is going to hurt us. That is not unique to churches in any way. But I do think that the arrogance of the church um, can be unique, which is to say- It's the spiritual pathology, bro. Yes, like I have to hear stories 
nearly every day, almost exclusively from women. Yes. About ways oh in which um, people have, with a really tender voice and with a really like honest heart, abused them. I mean, like, and they're doing it because they're abstracting these principles and then making people live by them, not in a way that like calls them to a better self. That's not what we're talking about but completely rips it out of context and in doing so they actually lie because they, because again, this is Bonhoeffer and I'll get off my soapbox, I promise. But um, for Bonhoeffer, like you can, you can uh, say a thing that is factually true, but it is not truthful because to be truthful is to reflect the reality of the situation, which takes, ding, ding, ding. takes relationship and context into account. And so, um, and so you can tell the truth and not be truthful. And I, that is like, we've just got to figure that out. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that is so true in, in, in multiple senses. Um, so kind of wrapping up a little bit here, you know, kind of a two part question, you know, being, being involved in these sort of, movement and movement work and, and activist sort of circles. Um, what are some, uh, what are some practices and, and, and truths that you have uh, kind of leaned on and uh, to keep you hopeful in these things? And, you know, I'm just hearing you talk where you talked a lot about um, like friends who have kind of helped you in that transition. Like what does that practice look like for you? And could you maybe like give us some examples of that? Yeah, I mean, friends are imperative, <laughs> like, um, and not even, I mean, like friends that you look up to, friends that you admire, friends who you trust when they tell you to slow down, like, you know, it's not just because they're scared of you. Um, so I have, I mean, I have friends whose work looks like, um, you know, checking in once a week on wives whose husbands have been murdered by the police, who... Uh, I have friends whose Instagram accounts are like completely dedicated to like shout out to Richmond where you are, like just to Richmond people who need help with diapers or rent or whatever. Like that's that like all they do is raise money pretty quickly via Venmo. Like, um, like my mom is someone that I look up to in this work, not because she's like some super rad, you know, sixties early feminist, but um, which is not to like, negate those people necessarily but like she's just a person who is always doing the next righteous thing she's been teaching for 25 years for kids on the spectrum ages four to six and like she's just um she's ferociously good and so one thing that's been helpful uh that i've had to learn like via crash and burn is uh that Often, you know, I've talked a lot about like protest here, but I want to say too that often the work is like very, very, very normal. And I think people get scared because they think that it's not. Um, I think that Christians get sort of like mind blown by not understanding what activism might be. Like activism is doing righteous deeds, often in public, sometimes not by being aware of the context of your community. Like that's not that complicated but you have to be a learner. You have to be humble. Um, and you have to listen to what God is telling you. But so my friends are like crucial there, but I do, I do think this is the question. Like, how do you remain hopeful? Um, 
we're in like a constant news cycle. We're in a world that like is praise God exposing evil every single day. And it's like this reckoning is just, it's very easy to be hopeless. It is especially like, I think that at least the, the community that I am in is like mostly ah historical, which is to say like, we don't really have a massive imagination for the past in part because that's been extracted through like a very serious process of white supremacy. But also like there's no like deep history, which is to say like we might go back like 60 years. And so there's also like, it's harder to have a vision of the future. Um, so I wanna try to, one of my practices I think that I really am thankful for is, uh, and this was given to me by a mentor, um, is to like locate myself historically. And so to say uh, this mentor uh, has told me that like white supremacy and the transatlantic slave trade is the most catastrophic event in the history of what we call the Western world that we know of. Um, white supremacy is not ending in 20 years. That is a lot easier news for me to hear and say than it is for any of my other brothers and sisters who are like more adversely affected by this directly. Um, but that also shows me that like if white supremacy is not completely done away with in America in the 60 years or so that I might have left on earth, like that's not a legitimate reason to not be hopeful. And so that, that comes to mind, like locating myself historically also like geographically helps that to know, like if I, move to another, I mean, don't get me wrong, white supremacy has been exported all over the world. Um, there are ways in which like hierarchical power structures that are oppressive and not at all unique to racism. Um, however, there are other places where if I went, if I moved to some other place, then faithfulness might not be attempting to deconstruct white supremacy like it is here. I might be called to do something else more specifically. Um, and also there's, there's a lot of sinful things in the world. Um, so locating myself geographically is helpful. And as sort of, uh, as my influences might, might suggest, like very simple things are extremely helpful for me. As someone who is a dreamer, a doer, like I love energy, I love big ideas, I love big things. I like thinking about, um, the future and institutions and cultural, all these stuff, all these things seem big. Um, but what grounds me is morning and evening prayer. Uh, what humbles me is morning and evening prayer. Like when it's really, really hard for me to just wake up and read and pray, it's kind of hard to get full of yourself. Um, which has, has been a struggle for me frequently. Also, confession is this paradoxical way for me to be hopeful because I'm not carrying around all my stuff. I don't know if we can cuss on you. Sure. Uh, I want you to do it first so that I can like, set the, <laughs> so that I can set the precedent. I just, yeah, whatever. The older brother of the podcast, just like making the parents standards lower. <laughs> yeah. So, so confessing my sins to someone who listens to all of my dark insecurities and actions and just stares at me and says, do you have anything else? Um, there's something so freeing about that that yeah. allows me to know, okay, I can actually stumble a lot 
and still keep going. Um, and then this is a, another thing that my friends bring up is like, I need to be around optimists. Like, I just absolutely need to not naive people. Like yeah. the, I, I don't mesh very well with people that I determined to be naive. And that's probably a character flaw on my end, but I need to be around people who are just like aware of God's victories and goodness. Um, and one of those people, and this, this will be the last thing I keep rambling is that, um, one of my friends here at, at seminary, Adedayo, he was just like, dude, well, you know what you need to do is you need to go in your room and you need to close the door, like cut on some music or something so you're not embarrassed and just like praise God for five freaking minutes. <laughs> like it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what it sounds like. You can praise God for dying for you. You can praise God for things God's doing now. You can praise God for promises of the future. Just do it. And that has been like an unexpected pill of reality amidst the sadness of the world sometimes. And uh, so I absolutely commend that to people, especially white people who have sort of been conditioned perhaps to imagine uh, religious respectability as like being quiet. Like that is what's honoring to God. Um, yeah, that I think that that has stunted uh i mean some of it is just like a, a response to a cultural scheme but mm -hmm. um but some of it means that we have to like expand our imaginations for a religious life and that i'm grateful to my friend out for that yeah i mean i have uh i have a friend on on instagram who follows this account shout out to to karis um karis canes but she said she said something the other day that I was just like, oh my goodness, yes. Where she said, um, being, uh, being cynical isn't any more realistic than being grateful. Mm -hmm. And it sucks. And I was like, dang, like that is so true. And like the amount of times that I think if I'm hearing you correctly, like people like you and, and kind of people in, in certain contexts and, and, and in our, just in our society, like there's this very, there's this idea that if you are, if you're being optimistic, you're being unrealistic, that you're, that if you're just cynical and like constantly questioning and pushing and everything is bad and nothing's going to get better, and nothing good has ever happened. And this is, it's just all garbage, basically. Mm. That that's unrealistic. That that's not like a true statement whatsoever. Um, and, you know, people like have different ways that they sort of uh, like, you know, internalize that and, and, and push on that. But it's just, it's so true that like, it's it's not a one-to-one -one. you you either are completely cynical or like everything is great like there's this mixture that's learning how to live faithfully in the middle of that that i think really um is the place to be yeah i mean you have a counselor's heart so like you understand the complications of that um this just came to mind as you said that and that is one of my struggles is um and I mentioned this at the jump, like wondering if God is good. And, and that's like a reoccurring question for me. And one thing that has, that has stuck out in sort of movement work is um, that it's, 
it's really important to not um, to not view the present moment as indicative of what the future might be. Mm. And how that looks for me and might maybe for our listeners is like, so God is blessing me all the time. Right. But if I interpret God's goodness to me as, um, as only or primarily about the lack of bad experiences that I have, like if that's mm. how I determine that God is being good. Uh, then I can like easily trick myself into thinking that God is not good, but it really is just a vision problem with me. Like I'm interpreting every negative thing in my life as a lack of God's goodness, but God's been blessing me for the rest of the day. And I just can't possibly see that. And so that's, I think part of the work of a pastor, I assume, I hope um, part of the, my work myself is like to try to cultivate vision for seeing God's goodness in the world that truly is like I, the only way I know of to keep uh, pressing into the pain of my neighbors as best that I can anyway. Yeah. Preston, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was an awesome conversation. I hope people um, will continue to be blessed by just your wisdom, um, the ways that you, you think deeply about things. Yeah, this was awesome, man. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Kyle, I've had so much fun with you you know, surprising absolutely nobody. So, <laughs> really. All right, man, take it easy. All right, be easy.